You're listening to Broadcast Behind the Screens, the podcast brought to you by Broadcast and Broadcast Intelligence. This week, I spoke to the BBC's first disinformation correspondent, Mariana Spring, about her newly created role and how she's grappling with the rise of fake news in our final podcast of the series. Welcome back to our last episode of the series. I'm Alice Redfern, Head of Content for Broadcast Intelligence. And I'm Heather Fallon, a reporter on broadcast. So this is it. The end of the season. We overran by three more episodes than planned, but I think we just both wanted to kick the podcast off by saying thank you to everyone for listening to the past 11 episodes. Yeah, we've really loved making the podcast and yeah, we've been really touched by the response that it's had. Yeah, long may it continue, to be honest. <laughs> we'll come back. Uh, I think that's not really a spoiler, is it? We'll, we'll no. definitely be making a return. Maybe maybe we should make commissioning announcement in a broadcast newsletter. <laughs> we've been recommissioned for season two. Yeah. You've heard it here first. <laughs> but yeah, do we do we want to talk about the news today, Heather? No. <laughs> the only news that me and Alice are currently capable of talking about is the Don't Worry Darling press tour. And that's all I have. <laughs> yep. Who needs a new prime minister when you could have Florence Pugh as prime minister? <laughs> like, finally, someone the country can back. <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be nice just to talk about some of our highlights of the past season, have a little moment of reflection. Yeah. So it's been a while since we kicked off with Dolly Alderson telling us about adapting her memoir, Everything I Know About Love. And we've had some great episodes since. A personal highlight for me was Dolly, podcast queen. But also I loved Jack Rook. And since then, Big Boys has got a series two recommission. So I think, you know, if you wanted to return next series, we could... Love to that. put that out there. I would love to chat to him again. I feel like he's one of those people that you could just talk to for hours. Yeah, I feel like he might match our chaos a bit. Um, <laughs> let's manifest that. Get some, get the crystals out, girlies. We did end up having more episodes than planned because you know the TV industry is, as always, incredibly unpredictable, and opportunities just kept cropping up that we didn't want to say no to. So. I'd love to shout out Ita O'Brien. She was absolutely wonderful discussing the role of an intimacy coordinator and it's still one that's ongoing. And now that we've got access coordinators rolling out as well, I just think it's the side of the industry that makes me feel really excited about the progress that's being made. And then you were able to touch on it again in another one of my favorites, which was your chat with Patrick Walters from Heartstopper. A lot has happened just generally TV news wise during the past 12 weeks. I think it is that it's actually been since we started started the podcast. I am going to touch on one piece of today news, though, because uh, Nadine Dorries is no longer the culture secretary. If, if anyone wants to find old episodes of Commissioning Conversations, you'll hear about my backstory with Nadine. Um it's been Personal. since it's long, it's long standing. <laughs> it is, and I'm not going to say any more on that. You can go into the archives and find out why I have beef with her since I was 12 or 13. But she has been replaced by Michelle Donnellan, and she 
is a former A&E Networks UK marketing exec. It's also the latest in such a long line. We've had so many culture secretaries in a really short amount of time. So honestly, at this point, who knows? Uh, obviously, we'll we'll keep a close eye on all things and what this might mean for things like Channel 4 privatisation, but also conversations around the licence fee. But honestly, there's just been so many that it's it's really hard to tell at this point what what Michelle will be like. She has previously said that the licence fee is an unfair tax and should be scrapped altogether. But it's been a long summer. But now it's time for us to go back to school. Not really. Um, We're just going to take a short break, get some more juicy episodes in order, have a little think about our format, some more fun guests, exciting TV news. So yeah, last intro for a while over and out. So this week I spoke to Marianne Spring. She's the BBC's first disinformation correspondent and she has the rather daunting task of reporting on the growth of fake news. And as we discuss in our chat, it's a role that is already somewhat established in the US and one that will likely grow in the UK too. Sounds really exciting. Let's take a listen. Hello. It's Hello. really, really good to meet you. And what an exciting position that you're starting out in. Thank you. Um, I'm delighted to be here and to be, as ever, investigating everything bad that you can possibly think of on social media. Yeah. So for those that don't know, you've recently been appointed the newly created role of disinformation and social media correspondent. So could you maybe start off by telling me what the purpose of that role is, I mean, it is very much what it says on the tin and also why the BBC has created this role specifically now. Absolutely. So it is what it says on the tin. Um, my job is to investigate and report on disinformation, conspiracy theories, trolling, social media harms. And I have a particular focus in the human cost and the real world impact that all of that can have. Um, and that's acro- across a variety of different formats from podcasts to BBC Panorama, uh, current affairs, documentaries and investigations to Newsnight and everywhere, which I think very much reflects the way that, I don't know, the the correspondent role as we might think of it at TV news organisations is evolving and changing. You know, you have to be able to do everything and actually all those different formats reach a variety of different audiences. And I'm really lucky to be able to do all those things. I love doing them. I'm trying to remember what the second bit of your question was. So why why do you think we're doing this now? I think that we've all seen throughout the course of the pandemic, um, around the war in Ukraine, around the election in the States and elections elsewhere, how much of a real world impact that online disinformation uh, can have, as well as trolling and conspiracy theories and hate and just lots of nasty stuff online. Um, And I think that my role very much reflects the commitment from the BBC to investigating this beat. And it's one that um, in the States particularly, there are quite a lot of dedicated reporters, correspondents who who work in this area at NBC, at the New York Times, at CNN. And the UK has been, I guess, somewhat behind actually on that. We haven't had dedicated reporters investigating this area as quickly as some of those US broadcasters. And so it's brilliant to see how the UK is, um, I don't know, dedicating resource to this, specifically that the BBC is. 
because it definitely isn't an American phenomenon. And I think a lot of people think of it as, oh, you know, this is something sort of a bit strange that's happening over in the States. It absolutely isn't. And I think particularly a lot of the podcasts I've been doing over the past year and one called Death by Conspiracy that was all about a man called Gary Matthews who died of COVID, thought COVID wasn't real. That was exploring how Shrewsbury, which you might not think of as, you know, a, a, a town infected by conspiracy theories, had been. Um, and the way that the online world was uh, affecting what was happening offline in the cruelest way possible. You know, someone like Gary lost his life. Um, and then around the war in Ukraine, you know, obviously that, you know, above all is affecting those in Ukraine and um, those in Russia. But also it affects all of us and being able to interrogate the way that disinformation works and how people are targeted and what that means. I, I did a podcast called The War on Truth, which was looking at that specifically and the stories of the different people who found themselves at the heart of this. And one thing I'm really passionate about, and I'm, I've been very well supported by the BBC in doing this, is actually really humanising this area. I think also yeah. for quite a while, it's been an area that's seemed a bit more geeky and a bit more fringe and techy and not accessible to wider audiences. Um, and it's crucial that it's accessible to wider audiences because it, it affects all of us. And so I think by exposing the harm that it can do and putting real people at the heart of those podcasts or panorama investigations, I did, I did a panorama about a little boy called Ollie, a 13-year-old who'd died and, and the role that social media played in what happened to him, um, a social media murder. And, you know, all of those the, those two podcasts I've mentioned, that panorama, they are about real people and they're about real people that find themselves caught up in this. And one of the best bits about my job is hearing from listeners and viewers and people who maybe weren't aware of the harm this can cause and maybe don't even see themselves as that sort of, I don't know, techie or into it from older audiences who don't really use social media to younger audiences who think oh I'm not sure if the BBC is for me you know mm. both of those types of people engage with this stuff and so yeah it's just a really positive thing to see that the BBC recognizes how important that is and how it's something that's growing I think after the pandemic people said to me oh maybe maybe your job will get a bit quieter <laughs> and I can safely say it has not got any quieter <laughs> at all yeah I think putting real people at the heart of stories just makes things so much more personal doesn't it because I think everyone knows someone who has for whatever reason an anti-vax perspective or knows more people that might talk more openly about conspiracy theories now and it does feel very pertinent at the moment across Absolutely. as you say in the US and also in the UK and part of your role the other half of your role is focusing on social media so I'd love to know what your thoughts are on platforms like TikTok and Instagram because they are now being used as key sources of information particularly by younger audiences that's how a lot of them consume news now so what what's your role in that and what do you think about the way that people are consuming news? It makes my job sort of all the more important because social media is this place where particularly younger people are turning to for news and updates and information that also leaves them exposed to disinformation or hate or other stuff on social media so in the first instance I think it's really it, it sort of emphasizes why it's so important that I this role even exists I think that in terms of the BBC's commitment to social media it's absolutely something that's 
built into the way that the BBC works now. Um, and certainly after the war, there was an investment in the new TikTok that we've got, which has been doing really well um, and is a place where impartial information can reach people, um, particularly with regards to sort of Russia and Ukraine, people who might not have access to that information otherwise because they've been blocked from that or because of state media or whatever. And I certainly think, you know, with everything I'm doing at the moment, we work that into, right, how is it going to work for podcasts, Radio 4, Panorama, the TikTok account, the social, you know, it's absolutely a part of that. I'm really thinking about the way that the audience interact with our journalism and where they're coming across it. And I think that there are two things I think are really vital. One is what we were just talking about, about real people and what is going to grip someone's attention. Because actually, in some ways, you almost want to, you almost want to use the tactics that disinformation actors use against them because they're the kind of things that sucker people in they're the things that people think oh wow that makes them react it makes them yeah. you know intrigued they want to they know more to about it. shocking headlines right or exactly. very attention so, grabbing which absolutely. And a so you, like tiktok tends to work quite well <laughs> completely and and you want to be obviously impartial and truthful and all of the things that the bbc sort of holds at its core but you want to be doing that in a way that is engaging those younger audiences and when we did the so- social media murder this investigation for panorama which um, you know is all about a, a group of people 13 year olds 14 year olds 15 year olds for whom tiktok is you know one of the places that they go all the time and so it felt imperative to not only investigate tiktok as part of that and to see what it was recommending younger teenagers in terms of violent content but to add you build that into the strategy and one of the things we found was that you know clips from from the panorama itself from the very start of the panorama the opening which was very emotional had ollie's mum and dad speaking ollie ollie who, who died it went really really viral on tiktok because younger audiences are really engaged in that high quality journalism but it just has to be in the place where they're going to see it and where they're going to access it and so that was really really positive thing to see and another thing that we experimented with which is less so social media just social media but I think actually as sort of a part of this conversation was we have a team at the BBC that do visual journalism they can develop cool interfaces for you to interact with the BBC's journalism on the app or online and we tried sort of just I'd, I'd created a fake account to test what 13 year olds are being recommended and we created this sort of slideshow that you could click through because if you are someone who natively spends a lot of their time on social media you want to see what the fake account's getting you want to feel like you are you know and that's one of the reasons I think we like social media because we have a bit more agency than we've ever had before we can interact and we can choose and we can move on and mm-hmm. so trying to kind of build on those more interactive interfaces I think is really good and you know they're, they're not easy and they require a lot of like development and investment and working out how stuff works but I've got a sort of project coming up where we're looking to set up a series of accounts that allow us to see what different people are being recommended. And it's one of those things that you just factor into it now. You think, right, how can we make this really engaging to younger people who are used to just sitting on their phone and want to feel like you're taking them with you and that you're being transparent about what you do and you're engaging them in a way that really suits the way they like consuming news. And I often think, it's, it's the way I consume news. I, you know, I'll go on my phone and sort of like click through and probably be way less, you know, way more in, impatient than my, my mum and dad would be who would sit down and watch the telly or who would listen to the radio in that way. And I think that's why we like podcasts as well, because it's all about it being on our own terms and feeling like, all oh, right, I'm going to listen to this right now. I'm going to have watched this video now. I don't have to. Well, you could pause it, listen it this to time. it later. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That was a very convoluted answer to your question. <laughs> no, not at all. I really enjoyed it because I th- I was just thinking, so I kind of hesitantly made a TikTok <laughs> account and at first really resisted it and then 
I don't know, you know, the algorithm figures out what you like. And it's very interesting because it does feel quite tailored and quite personal. And then I think when something does feel personal, it's so easy for misinformation to filter through. And I suppose ha- the advantage of having like the BBC logo behind you is a kind of a stamp of, you know, you can trust this source. Absolutely. But it's still it's still difficult, I imagine, to filter that information through. Yeah, and you're also grappling with, certainly in the area I investigate, people who don't trust the BBC and people who feel mm. let down by the yeah. Um, And so you really want to, I, I think what's crucial, and, and I try to do this in my job, is to, to be these impartial investigators that are seeking the truth, that are going out to reveal, you know, the harm that's being caused by mistruths and to reveal to people what's really going on in this social media world that we all kind of experience in a very subjective way, but is affecting our offline lives. Um, and more importantly, how are mistruths and lies kind of feeding into all of that? I think it's really important. I I, I think that the issue of empathy and the way that we, you know, when, when we're talking about that issue of distrust, something that, again, I tried to do. And I think by, you know, talking directly to people on social media and social media offers you a more direct connection often with people that you feel like you're talking to a friend, you feel like podcasts are quite similar. You feel like you're actually having a conversation with someone you might know. I think that that helps to rebuild that trust in the same way that that transparency does and actually showing people, this is how we investigated this and this is how we did our workings and come along with us, making people feel like they're a part of it and and showing empathy because as you pointed out, almost everyone I talk to tells me about someone they know. It could be a friend, a neighbor, a family member who has uh, fallen for disinformation or who's fallen victim to it and they're not crazy and they're not stupid and they're not weird they're not any of the buzzwords and the misconceptions we have about that they actually are often very intelligent very curious and understandably distrustful and feel let down by various things and what's crucial is that is at, at the heart of what we do because we want to understand and we want to hold people accountable when they're spreading mistruths or causing causing harm but we also want to understand how this is happening and why because this is so much bigger than the individuals it's about investigating the social media companies it's about holding to account policymakers and the police and all kinds of other people that are part of this ecosystem and so I I like to think that a combination of all those things that kind of rebuilding that relationship with or building a new relationship with younger audiences that's through social media that's Mm -hmm. empathetic that's bringing them with you that's genuine and truthful is a really hopeful place for the BBC to be at and one that's something like my role actually you know that's the whole essence of it is is investigating and exposing with all the same old school journalistic skills that you require to be any reporter or correspondent but doing it in this world that we are just all exposed to all the time and we can no longer kind of pretend that conspiracies and disinformation and trolling are niche and random and oh we better ignore them because that will make it better that doesn't that doesn't happen It, it it actually is worse because we're not exposing the harm that's happening Yeah. And I really like what you're saying about kind of when you listen to a podcast or something, it feels like more of a personal conversation. But there's obviously a two way street to that with engaging on social media because it's such a quick, direct feedback loop. Right. And there has been some skepticism, as you've already said, there are some people that don't trust the BBC for a plethora of reasons. And one of the uh, people that I noticed recently, Mark Dolan, was on GB News and said that you're role represents the BBC policing the news and deciding what isn't isn't true and you know there are other people that are skeptical so I'd love to know what your response is to that and to comments like that. Uh, My response on the whole is always to go and or to show people the reporting that I do do and to show Mm -hmm. them what it is Um, and often you find in 
clips or comments like that, um, there seems to be a disconnect between the topics they're talking about and then actually the reality of what my role is. You know, my role isn't to tell people what to believe. That's that's not my job. My job is to, as it is of all journalists, to tell the truth, to get to the bottom of stuff. And specifically when it comes to me, it's about exposing the real world consequence of disinformation, hate, trolling, social media harms. And so I always like to direct people to the podcasts I've mentioned, like Death by Conspiracy and War on Truth and Panorama, Social Media Murder. All three of those things are, I hope and I believe, you know, impartial investigations that look at the harm that this is causing and the way it affects the world around us. And we prize particularly that point about empathy and understanding and really trying to get to the bottom of this stuff very highly because it's so crucial to impartiality. We can't be impartial if we're not interrogating and also trying to hear from as many people as we can and understand and so I find it I find it frustrating when people say things like that because I feel like they haven't listened and they haven't read and they haven't watched and they haven't heard and I'd like them to (laughs) and so um, that that tends to be my response kind of pointing them towards what I'm doing Um, and actually um, one thing that I found really positive um, and it certainly is sort of a part of the BBC investing in this space and this role Mm. um, is that people are realising how this is a big problem and it is affecting a lot of people. Um, and I'm sure um, some people listening might have seen the trial happening with Alex Jones um, over in the States and how he has now yeah. got to pay an awful lot of money to the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting who he accused of being crisis actors and said it was a hoax and everything else. You know, that was a very sort of well-covered trial and it demonstrated the value in exposing this stuff. And certainly for the for the family, I think the value in, in sort of feeling like they were able to hold him to account, which, which can be which can be quite difficult when you're reporting in this area and the next podcast and investigative sort of documentary and project I'm working on is all about the UK version of this and how it's happening here and how it's really important that we um we interrogate it and all these victims of tragedies and terror attacks and everything else are being subject to these kinds of conspiracies and hate and they want someone to do something about it they want the social media sites to listen they want police to listen and you know our job is to go and investigate that and to see how it's happening and where it's coming from and and who who it's affecting Um, and I think we just have to yeah I, I think that the people who offer criticism often don't don't see this as a as a separate beat in the way that you would see technology and health mm. and education as separate areas that are worthy of investigation. This area is worthy of investigation. And there are a lot of people across the political spectrum, across the UK, from different communities, from all over the place who are being affected by this. It's not a one-way street by any means. And we wouldn't be doing our job as a public service broadcaster if we weren't investigating this topic. Yeah, I think the more, the more prevalent the social media and alternative sources of information become the more prevalent your role becomes right and you kind of took the words right out of my mouth because I was going to say you know what what are you looking to explore next and as this is the broadcast podcast we are predominantly a tv trade I'd really like to know what you love about tv as a platform for information and also what you're looking to do in the tv space yeah, um, I love I um, I I love doing telly. Um, I particularly have liked <laughs> doing, yeah, which is good, which is useful. Um, I loved working with I've worked with with Panorama a few times now on a kind of series of investigations, social media murder, which I mentioned, but also an investigation I was really proud of last year about um, online hate targeting women um, and the impact that that's had, um, and also one about the tactics of anti-vax activists sort of in the depths of the pandemic. And I love the ability 
to tell stories on television and the power in I was really thinking this when we did a social media murder but Ollie's mum and dad who were at the heart of that who reached out to me and asked me to you know told me about Ollie's story and said would you investigate the role that social media played and what happened to him and I you know bottomed it out and interrogated it and thought well this is really worthy of investigation Um, and kind of a side note that's another real highlight of my job because people getting in touch with me and telling me and that is so much almost everything I'll talk to you about today will have been triggered by a licensed fee paying person reaching out to me and saying, Mariana, this is really worrying me. What do you think? And And that is just a lot of trust in you as a person, as well as the BBC as an organization, especially for something so personal as like the death of your child. Yeah. And and I think that I take that with, you know, I see that as such a privilege that people would reach out to me like that. And um, such a, such a duty to honor that and to really, you know, interrogate what they're saying. And that's one of the real bonuses of social media is the ability for people to reach out in that way that would have been really hard 30 years ago. Um, and so the, the, the panorama kind of came off the back of that and Ollie's mum and dad, Amanda and Stuart, I feel like, you know, I've become really close to because I work with them on this investigation and they are absolutely wonderful and very brave people. And they, you know, there are moments in that in that panorama, some of the most powerful moments of, of just silence or of just, you know, Ollie's memorial bench and a group of his friends telling me about sort of the role social media has played in their lives, particularly in terms of violence and hate and Ollie's mum and dad walking to meet them and all of those things that you couldn't capture. You you need to see it. You need to see it and 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 really sort of to really feel it and feel that you're a part of it I think watching it is so crucial Um, and it's really immersive and I love if you're comparing I love doing news but you just don't have as much time and to have half an hour where you're really interrogating a story and you're hearing from different people and you're seeing them and you're able to see that emotion you know the moments of silence are just as powerful as the moments of talking Um, I, I, I particularly like that about telly um and i'm working with panorama on this kind of next project about trolls and there's just something about being able to really sort of you know if we're talking about exposing the impact and exposing the harm to see people sit there and tell you about their experiences it was the same with online hate you know really really powerful and in a way that telly can do that I mean, I absolutely love podcasts, but podcasts can't do it in the same way. And you really want to see people and you want to hear from them. And, you know, I think it's it's a crucial space for the BBC. I mean, we know there's always these talks about Netflix and about, mm-hmm. about documentaries and how can the BBC be up with them and competing with them. And I always just think, particularly when, you know, I'm working on Panorama or something like that, just how I'm so incredibly proud and the journalistic integrity and values that are at the heart of those documentaries, not just making them beautiful to watch and anything but actually you know really rigorous journalism is just like some of the best in the world and you feel really lucky to be sitting there with people asking all the right questions and putting at the heart of what you do the real people you know when we did that panorama the most important thing was Stuart and Amanda the most important thing was Ollie's friends more than anything and you feel really privileged when you work for an organization like that because I, I you know that's not always the case in the media but it certainly is at the BBC. Yeah and I suppose when you're tackling disinformation specifically having a visual reference and being able to see something come to life and show that as being the truth rather than, uh, I suppose, something that's easily headline grabbing or I suppose one of the main ways in which disinformation spreads is it's kind of like a loose, vague headline that has some things that sound like truth, but then can be easily manipulated. Whereas I suppose when you're seeing something in a documentary, being thoroughly investigated and taken apart, it's much more easy to see where the truth is in that. 
Completely. And, and, you know, so much of the kind of countering the disinformation often comes from the real people, comes from the people who are affected saying, well, this didn't happen or that didn't happen like that. And you need to hear their testimonies. They are the sort of antidote. But actually you touched on something really interesting, which is that inherently my job is actually quite hard to visualize. <laughs> and yeah. uh, there are lots of clips of me sitting at laptops and sitting on phones. And like, it, it's really hard sometimes to make this stuff around social media exciting and engaging. And Real people really help with that because you have real people you can show and talk to and interview. But then also, you know, really experimenting with different formats. And around that panorama, we the BBC's got a big new snazzy studio for the six and ten o'clock news, and they have this giant screen. And I was able to kind of show the fake account that I'd set up a 13-year-old. Him, I was able to show the kind of violent content knives for sale stuff like that that it had been recommended on this giant iphone and it felt really interactive and not only did it feel transparent and like we were revealing important stuff to the audience but it also it just really it was like wow tv is tv is evolving and you know we we want to be able to show people what's going on on social media in cool and exciting ways and i hope that's something we're kind of testing out more and how we can make stuff you know in that panorama as well we had this giant room of like perspex screens and yeah. all these really cool ways of making it look a bit more exciting than me just being like oh hello i'm on a computer <laughs> i found something <laughs> yeah well you have to engage with people right and i think part of the kind of skepticism that comes with the bbc is people disengaging with it as as a platform you know it's the british broadcasting corporation it's been around for decades upon decades and i suppose my next question for you is what do you see the future of your role at the bbc being and also more widely you know you've touched on the fact that it's more common in the us but do you think we'll be seeing growing disinformation teams across different publications and at the bbc i think in terms of the future of the bbc um and my the future of my role at the bbc mm-hmm of the projects I've mentioned about you know setting up dummy profiles that we can really investigate the subjective social media worlds that voters or people or others are exposed to that work for podcasts and telly and online and everywhere is is one facet of that I think doing um, really powerful and impactful investigative podcast series um, which again tie in with telly and documentary you know it's doing stuff for everyone I think that's the future of the kind of median and it's being able to do a podcast series that also works as a tv documentary it's being able to when we when we did the war on truth um, podcast series there was this very powerful story of another woman called Mariana who found herself at the heart of a disinformation campaign um, which was being waged by Russian officials um, and accused her of acting and everything else and you know getting to the bottom of her story and interviewing her which was very editorially complicated and was something we did for the podcast itself and for Radio 4 we also did it for Newsnight and online and everywhere and I think that that is just the model certainly for my job going forward and I do think actually the model for you know correspondence to exist in the future I think I think that's how that's how it will work I think in terms of this beat that um, it is absolutely being recognized as something that is affecting the way we live our lives and the world I'm actually writing a book which is nearly finished (laughs) called Among the Trolls Notes from the Disinformation War which is out next year but you know it it is essentially all about this how this is a huge problems affecting our society and changing all of our lives disinformation trolling hate harm on social media um and you know the media are treating it with rightly the kind of um seriousness that that they should and investigating it and and i can imagine that will continue to grow in the uk because post-pandemic you know a lot of the people who were drawn into anti-vax or covid conspiracies they haven't 
they haven't just sort of gone oh yeah great sorry about that I had a funny half hour but it's fine now you know they they think that climate change isn't real they think the war in Ukraine isn't real we've seen um, we've seen rallies happening at drag story times, um, which feature prominent anti-vax protesters promoting false information about those drag acts reading the stories. Um, we're seeing how there are trolls haranguing people after disasters as I'm investigating. We're seeing how over in the States with Alex Jones and everything else, you know, there's there's some levels of accountability perhaps, but then also there's um, a mainstreaming of disinformation. We're seeing people who, you know, propagate the QAnon conspiracy running for Congress. So I think that it will be this kind of ever-growing beat. And, and, you know, I've spoken about the UK, which I focus on a lot, and I've spoken about the US, but all over the world, there are communities and places that are being affected massively by online disinformation campaigns, elections, wars from from Ukraine, as we've as we've spoken about, to obviously in Syria, we saw, you know, some of the most brazen disinformation tactics, which have then evolved yeah. online when it comes yeah. to Ukraine and um, everything around Afghanistan, around, you know, there's, there's just this, this affects communities all over the world. And it always really strikes me that even when I do an investigation that is very British, something like Death by Conspiracy, which is, you know, focused on Shrewsbury, which a lot of people all over the world won't have heard of, or Ollie, which is, you know, about something that happened in Reading, again, a place a lot of people won't have heard of. They'll do brilliantly in 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 Brazilian and in um, Pidgin and in a variety of different languages because these are issues affecting people all over the world. And um, while there are differences in how we experience them and the harm that's caused, people get it. People, people want to know about social media harms and how they can sort of understand the world around them and I hope that in some ways I would be quite good if my role didn't need to exist in sort of a decade's time but I actually just think that you know this is a new beat and a new area that will just expand and expand and expand um, and I'm really happy that the BBC I, I hope is sort of at, at, at the front of that and showing how important it is through the journalism that we do. Yeah no I, I definitely think that there'll be more disinformation correspondence. Although it does make it sound like I'm spreading disinformation. Yes. I promise. <laughs> that is not what it is. But it's too garbled to say a correspondent who investigates disinformation yeah. and social media. Anti-disinformation correspondence. Yeah, but then that makes you sound a bit campaigny and that's also not the yes. right genre. Yeah. No, it's a tricky, it's a tricky title, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, how, how have you found it so far? I'm going to have to wrap up shortly, but um, I really hope that you're enjoying yourself. It sounds like you've covered some really, really interesting stories. Yeah, I'm loving it. Um, I'm particularly loving sort of building to a couple of these projects that are coming out in the autumn and actually all that collaboration, you know, being able to do stuff for everyone and doing it in different ways and experimenting and trying new things for online. And we've got a piece that will be coming out soon, which is kind of looking at you know, the subjective social media worlds that different voters experience and how that can affect them um, and how that works across the board from, yeah, podcast to telly to online and, and being able to, I, I think as well, uh, one of the kind of, I've been I've been investigating this area for the past, you know, over, over two years actually, but one of the most exciting things about my new title and my new role is that just as I said, that people reach out to me and ask me to investigate things. Again, it's a kind of renewed push where people think, oh, right, Marianne is the person I'm going to get in touch with about how, um, you know, someone I care about is deep into online conspiracies and this bad thing is happening or social media harm has been caused to someone I care about. And here it is. And I want to reveal it to you. And, you know, it's, it is really is. And it's very cliched, but it really is such a great privilege to be able to kind yeah. of talk to people and investigate their stories and hear from them. And that's the whole essence of public service broadcasting. The most satisfying thing ever is when you have a podcast or a panorama or whatever go out and you just see all the impact it has and you see people reacting and caring. When I did the 
online hate targeting um, women, the panorama I did last year, you know, there were so many women who reached out to me to say, oh, wow, I've been experiencing, you know, this awful hate along with racism and homophobia and all kinds of other abuse online. Thank you for highlighting it and exposing it because I think I love the courage we have to not be, um, I think this is an area that people have sometimes been a little bit squeamish or a little bit worried about covering and there's always important conversations to have about amplification versus the public service value and exposing something and holding someone to account and so on and we have very in-depth conversations about that a lot of the time with my team and my editors and so on but actually us having the courage to report on this stuff and to expose it so that you know the people that we serve um you know viewers and listeners and readers feel like we are investigating something that affects them so yeah i really like it it's the up some (laughs) I think that's I think that's a really nice place to wrap up. It's been it's been so nice talking to you, Mariana. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think fake news is something that we really need to all keep on top of. So I'm so excited to see how this role grows and becomes a more common thing in the news and journalism industry. But that is it. That's the end of series one of Broadcast Behind the Screens. How are you feeling, Heather? <laughs> uh, some weird mixture. I'm slightly relieved because it's been quite tiring, but also it's been so fun. And thank you so much, everyone that's been listening. It, as I already said, it really means a lot and it's nice. <laughs> It is nice, yeah. Thanks to everyone we interviewed, all the PRs that we've been in touch with who have put forward suggestions. Please keep them coming because I doubt we'll be able to stay away from our microphones for that long. And yeah, again, thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. Bye. Bye.